share with you today. Uh, before I do, um, just a little something that's been on my heart uh, specifically for this weekend service. Uh, over the last uh, three or four weeks, we have been breaking all sorts of uh, in-person attendance records, um, along with a whole bunch of folks online that are joining us that are brand new. And uh, I've been hearing along with all that, all that kind of buzz and excitement, uh, a bunch of stuff that that Kesset is doing that's, that's really encouraging. So I've heard that Kesset is, uh, is very welcoming. I've heard that Kesset is very creative. I've heard that Kesset uh, is a place where you can come and be your whole self, a place where you can sit in the tension, a place where you can disagree uh, both with uh, the pastor, which I don't recommend doing that often, but I've heard that that's allowed. Uh, <laughs> Probably the other pastors here, but not, not this one. But um, I've heard that Kesed is a place that you can even be disappointed in God, that you can disagree with God, all these wonderful things that is, that is completely true about Kesed. I want to make sure of something, though. I want to make sure that, that as we go out and kind of have this summer of invitation, which is what I'm kind of starting to call it, as we go out and we tell people about Kesed and we tell people about this safe space where they can come and, and interact with their living God, that that the primary thing we tell them about is Jesus. That the primary thing that we message is Jesus. That it's not about a communicator or a singer or a brand or a style or, or anything other than Jesus. And I, and I know we know this, but it's so, so important that, that we continue to remind ourselves that what we are doing here is proclaiming the message of Jesus. And Jesus is the one who's great with tension. Jesus is the one who can handle being disagreed with. Jesus is the one who's hyper-creative. Jesus is the one who's welcoming. Jesus is the one who's honoring. Jesus is the one who goes with you wherever you are and meets you there. And so I, I just, I hope we blow the doors off this place with all of our friends and families. But my hope is that the message and the reason that people come, and more importantly, the reason they stay, is because of Jesus. Amen? Okay, so that's just, that's just, yep, me and this guy right here, we agree with it a lot. We're not going to deal with the rest of you people trying to take it any way you want. Uh, good, good, good. Well, uh, we're in a series right now, week four, uh, called Choose Your Own Adventure. And uh, this is based on the uh, quite infamous 90s series of books named uh, The Same. And in this book, what we, what we were kind of highlighting is you could read this book and then it would say at the end of, let's say, chapter three, hey, if you want to go to here, then turn to this page. If you want to do this, go to this page. And you could therefore choose your own adventure through the book. Now, we recognize that, that we as a church are called to spend time in God's word, but that God's word in and of itself can be somewhat complicated. It can be intimidating. It can be confusing. And we've heard, I'm just throwing it out there, it can be kind of boring. And so we wanted to do a Bible series where we kind of reframed how we believe God has intended through his Holy Spirit and how he has hoped you will engage his book, which I believe is through this entire spiritual posture of adventure. You are invited in to read the stories of other people who have had adventures with God, and you are welcomed into that same path. And as you read this book, you are then invited to choose, which a lot of people have been confused about. Like, no, no, I just read the book, and then I do what it says. No, you don't very often. So why don't you just put the word, I made a choice not to, in front of it and let the adventure begin? Because this is often how we read the book. And it's not always wrong. 
Many times it is an invitation to obey and you can choose whether or not you want to obey or to apply and you can choose whether or not you want to apply and so can I. And so it is an adventure book, which is why so many of us are living somewhat apathetic spiritually. We might be physically adventurous. We might be relationally (laughs) adventurous, um, maybe, but most of us are not very spiritually adventurous. We have our beliefs and that's what we hold true. And we don't actually stretch anything or ask questions or, or risk anything. And so that's what this series is about. Now, we're taking a different choose your own adventure book every single week. And then we're using that to kind of illustrate a principle within the real life adventure book, the Bible, and teach from there. This week uh, is the book that I chose out of the 200 and some odd books that are Choose Your Own Adventure, I chose this one first. I just didn't preach it first because I wasn't really sure when I picked it how I was going to use it. And the name of the book is You Are a Shark. I picked it because I just thought it was a great name and look at that fantastic cover. You Are a Shark. When the preaching team got together, we all got to pick our books and everybody was like, what is that about? And I said, I have no idea, but it's mine. And so I saved it for this week. Let me read you the back of the book. It says, You are hiking in the remote mountains of Nepal when you discover an ancient temple. You go in to take a look around. Suddenly you feel the strength seeping out of your body. A mysterious monk appears before you. He tells you that you've invaded a forbidden temple. As punishment, you must leave your human life behind and become an animal. What will you choose to be? If you choose to be a creature of the air, turn to page 12. If you choose to be a creature of the land, turn to page 16. If you choose to be a creature of the sea, turn to page 6. Be careful. You might end up as a bird soaring through the sky, a mischievous fox cub, or a shark locked in battle with a killer whale. What happens next in the story, it all depends on the choices you make. At first, I wasn't sure how I wanted to use this. And then the more and more that I soaked in it, the more obvious it became. There is something incredibly mystical about stories of transformation. And they're almost always stories of something becoming, like something weak becoming powerful or something passive becoming dangerous. There is something really uh, ancient about this desire to be different than we are. And I believe that's why one of the primary themes of Scripture is an invitation for you and I to actually experience real-life transformation. The Bible is a book filled with this sort of transformational language. There are dozens of verses proclaiming the same truth, that there's a different way. A different way to love, a different way to work, a different way to live, a different way to experience life. But you have to transform in order to find it. And it all starts with your mind. Romans 12 verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so today that's where we're going to start. We're going to start with this exercise of, of, of actually trying to apply this transformational space into this room that we're in right now and so experience it in our mind. Because if you and I can start to transform our mind, our friendships will transform, our love lives will transform, our businesses will transform, our churches will transform, our communities will transform, even our physical bodies can transform through the renewal of 
our mind. And I believe the Bible is calling us to do that. But we have to decide that's what it's about. And honestly, that's not why most of us read it. We don't really read it for transformation. D.L. Moody says the Bible was not given for our information, but for our transformation. And he's exactly right because he's a smart guy and he knows the same thing that you and I know, which is most of us read the Bible to learn something. We read it to, to add information to our brain, not to actually transform our brain or transform our hearts or transform our lives. It's just more and more information. Now, I said at the beginning that Kesed is, is being touted as a lot of things right now. So let me just say this. Uh, part of the reason that we can live in space, like the one we're about to enter into, that I'm about to drag some of you into kicking and screaming, is because we do really enjoy sitting in the tension. Meaning, I don't need you to agree with everything I'm about to say, even though most of what I'm about to say is absolutely right. And I only say that boldly because what I'm about to say is simply what the Bible says. But, but the invitation is still for you to put up your defenses, to put on your intellectual hat, and to parse out and process what it is I'm about to show you. Because here's the thing. Kessid has spent a lot of time teaching people to be more and more open-handed. There are a lot of things in scripture that are really open-handed, that are invitational, that churches or church systems or religion has said belong in this box. And we have spent time unpacking that. And what it's done is created a church like this one, full of people like you who all disagree with each other and yet still sit in the same service. One of the ways you can tell this is happening is through the generational uh, evidence in some of the pews, even in this service, but especially our nine o'clock. In one of our pews at the nine o'clock, we have four generations represented in the same church service. You think those people all agree with each other about what's going on in the world and about what's right or wrong about what I'm teaching or about whether bass is just the right volume? Sorry, but it's the culture of open-handedness that allows us to sit in that invitational relational space. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have some close-handed things, that the Bible does not have some things that are not up for debate, things like Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven and the only way to find the uh, repentance and salvation that every single person on this planet that's ever existed and ever will exist needs. That is a close handed issue. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to agree with it. It just means based on the Bible and based on what this core community stands for, that though, that's a tenant that is close-handed that we believe. This is another one. Brokenness is real. Now, there's a movement within the church world right now that is moving away from brokenness because the church has kind of abused it and, let's be honest, manipulated it and kind of used it as a big giant bat to, to hit over people's heads with, you're broken, you're broken, you're broken, you're broken. I actually had a lady say to me once, like, do we have to use the word brokenness? Can we pick a new one? And I'm like, uh, it, it, it's, it's the right word, but it's just been used the wrong way. And so if we're not careful as a community, we can throw out the word and all of its meaning, but scripture is very clear because you cannot study it for very long without finding out that we all have brokenness in our lives, you and me. In other words, like our little adventure book, we are all sharks. For sake of the illustration, often our human nature functions like a predator among prey. If you allow your mind to 
to float, or you allow your mind to just daydream in traffic, eventually you're going to ask yourself, who's weak? Who's expendable? Who's replaceable? Who's runoverable? Who's destroyable? You may say quite boldly, I'm so sorry, but you said I could disagree with you, and so I'm going to disagree with you. That is not me, exclamation point. But then as I just allow a little more space in the room and your mind to wander, you will say eventually, but it might be some people that I know. It's a guy at work that I deal with, or it's a person that, uh, that I used to exp- that do life with in my past. Or you may not say it right now with your body, but you're saying it with your eyes as you look to the right or the left. It's the person with me, but it's certainly not me. See, everybody has this part of themselves that they don't want to face. And everybody has to face this part of themselves. Galatians 5, 17 through 24 says, For the sinful nature has its desire, listen carefully to to these words, which is opposed to the spirit. And the desire of the spirit opposes the sinful nature. For these two, the sinful nature and the spirit are in direct opposition to each other, continually in conflict, so that you, as believers, as believers, do not always do whatever good things you want to do. It doesn't matter how refined, It doesn't matter how much information you have or how many verses you have memorized. It doesn't matter how long you've been following Christ. You and I eventually will do things we do not want to do because you and I have brokenness in our lives. The truth is, people have a hard time seeing part of themselves, especially this part of themselves. Spiritualists call this part of themselves, the hard part of themselves, the shadow self. It's the common a term in, uh, in some uh, different spiritual circles, you know, outside specifically of the church. Now, the reason the church doesn't refer it to it as that is because the Bible already has a phrase for it, and it's called the old self. This is what's known as the old self or the shadow self or the broken parts of ourselves. Ephesians 4 says, verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Notice renewed in the spirit of your mind again. You put off the old self in your mind and you put on a new self in your mind. And this is incredibly important, especially if you call yourself a Christian because this is how you became a Christian in the first place. For those in the room who are just spiritually curious, this is how it works. You eventually will come to a point where you realize that everything you've been filling your life with doesn't work. And you will return to an ancient way, a way that all human beings have had to face a long time ago, confessing that they don't have what it takes to be the whole being they're called to be. And if you do your research and if you spend time studying and if you ask, you will find this continued rhythm that points back to a God who is above all else. And this God will be the God that calls you to renew your mind and transform. And this one day, if you so choose to do it, This has to be understood and accepted because if you cannot understand this and accept it, then there is no need for you to ask for salvation because without understanding that you're broken, there would be no need to be saved. And so therefore transformation is possible. Basically, this is what I'm trying to say. 
on the screens, only people who know they need to be saved will cry out for it. Period. Only people who know they will need to be saved will cry out for it. If you think you're treading water fine and you're just doing great, you're not going to scream out for anybody to save you. It is only when the water is over your head and you realize you have more, no more strength to succeed that you will scream and flail and ask for someone to come and save you. And that someone we believe is Christ. These are the people Christ came for, the flailers. <laughs> Describe some of you in the room right now. You're like, finally, he understands me. That's how I live my whole life. I just don't, I, I push through till I have to flail. Usually, by the way, people who flail help drown other people, punch people they love in the face, right? Stand on loved ones' heads so that they can finally breathe. And they're like, oh, I'm fine. Thank you, mom or dad or girlfriend or boyfriend or wife or husband. And they do everything they can to live, but Jesus says these people, what they need to grab onto is him. These are the people he came for, Mark 2, 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician. And then look what he says. But those who are sick, I came. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Sinners is another word for broken. Sick is another word for broken. It's an important part of the transformational experience because it is where salvation is first discovered. And yet, here's the problem. From my experience, the world outside these walls often has an easier time accepting this truth than those who grew up within them. I've sat with a lot of people since we started telling people we were spiritually curious. I've sat with uh, all kinds of people from all kinds of different spiritual backgrounds. None of them, not one single one has approached me with a, I don't have a problem. They're all like, I have a problem. I don't know if you have the answers. I don't know if your God's any different than what I believe in, but I know this, this isn't working. Do you know the people generally who tell me they don't have a problem? The ones standing on the heads of the people they loved, not drowning while everyone around them is asking if I can get a little bit of time with their family member who doesn't realize just how dysfunctional he really is. If you do not stop and realize that the people around you could be drowning because they're supporting your dysfunction, then you will never allow yourself to drown, which means you'll never ask for salvation, which clearly explains why you have never experienced a transformation, even though your church attendance is through the roof. Fist bump. <coughs> You're like, I never miss a week of going to church and then abusing my family. I never do. I'm consistent across the board. <laughs> And so, I know, I know, I'm sorry. Listen, there's people in the room right now who need to hear this. The rest of you just relax. You're coming next week. <laughs> what's so important about this to realize, what's so important about this to realize is that if we can grab hold of, of this Jesus that we're offering, then salvation can happen and of course, then transformation can happen. This is why the message of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross are so important. This is why we preach it. This is why it's close-handed. This is why it's core. And this is why it's so very important. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, it says, In Christ you are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Just keep the verse up on the screen. This is something I want you to see. There's two news in this verse. They both are the same new. They're the same translation of the word new. There's actually only 
two Greek words which are translated new in the Bible. The first one refers to neos, something that has just been made, but there are already many others in existence just like it. That's not the new in the verse that we just read. The new in the verse that we just read is the Greek word kainos, which means something just made, which is unlike anything else in existence. That's what Jesus Christ is offering. Go back to the verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is also why it's so very important not to just accept Christ and then be like, I'm transformed. The reality is you are transforming and you are today different than you were yesterday, hopefully, and you are gonna be different tomorrow than you are today. You are going to be something that has never yet existed in your life moving closer and closer to integration with Jesus and wholeness in your person. This is what Christ is bringing. We are made through Christ entirely new. Just as God created the heavens and the earth originally, he made them out of nothing. And so he does this with us. All he needs you to do is recognize you're drowning. Hashtag broken. That's the nothing he's looking for. Not standing on your mom's, right, or the legacy of your family or your church attendance or your intellect or your finance or any other security that makes you appear pretty solid from the outside. That's what you're standing on above the waves of your poor decisions. Jesus is like, no, that's something. That's got to go away. Well, then down I go. Yep. Because that's where Jesus meets us. When we are in Jesus, beneath the waves, We are partaking in his divine nature when we ask him for his saving love. Second Peter says it this way. I love this verse. Second Peter chapter one, verse three and four. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You don't gotta come up with anything. His divine power brings it all. You just show up. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. This is declaring that God himself and the person of his Holy Spirit takes up residence in our hearts. When we accept salvation from Christ, we are in Christ and he is in us. We bring our nothing and he brings everything else, transforming us from the inside out into something we've never been before. This is what the Bible is offering. This is really the the, the biggest onboarding into the adventure story there is. God calling us to transform. So now that I have preached this, uh, this hardly uh, arguable message with, with, with like hardly any debatable verses around what it means to transform and built a pretty solid case around the fact that all Christians are supposed to be doing this, the question has to be asked, why aren't they? Why, aren't, why are so many of Christ's followers not walking around free of the old self? Why are we constantly reliving old habits, old trauma, and old stories? Why is the church not famous for being a place where you can leave the old self behind and don a new person? 
I believe it's because we are constantly returning to the old way of living. And not just because we turn around and look for it, because the old life doesn't like to be left and is constantly running us down. My favorite prophet uh, in the Bible outside of Jesus is Elijah. I think Elijah, for me, is, is probably, again, outside of Jesus, the most powerful of all the prophets. My favorite story of his is the one where he actually is facing off with something sort of like what we're talking about right now, but it's on a, on a national level. There is a new king and queen, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, and they've decided that the God of Israel has too many rules and too many guidelines, and they don't like all the things that, that he requires of them in order to be uh, identified with him. So they invent a new one. They invent a new one, and this God's name is Baal, and Baal is like super trendy, like he's into all the cool stuff, all the easy stuff. Like to follow Baal is simple and prophets from all over sign up to be a part of what he's doing. And Elijah eventually is left by himself. So he goes to God and the king and he's like, what, what do you want to do here, God? There is a, like a national old self taking over and removing the true self, which is the identity of the living God. And God gives him a plan. And so Elijah proposes, uh, I don't know what else to call it, but a prophet off right? He's like, listen, Ahab, here's what you're going to do. You're going to get your, your prophets together. We're going to go to God's mountain, get all the leaders of Israel, the people who are influencers who can make a decision, and we're going to have a, a prophet off. And we're going to take a stone altar. We're going to put wood on it. Then we're going to sacrifice a bull. Then you're going to call your God to start the fire, and I'm going to call my God to start the fire. And whoever's God starts the fire, that's the real God. And Ahab's like, sounds good to me. So they pick a date. They pick a time. And Elijah shows up, and as he crests over the mountain, he looks out over the people of Israel, and then he looks off to his right, and there are 450 prophets of Baal that showed up, and Elijah. And Elijah's like, yep, you seem like fair numbers, let's do it, all right, time to go, right? So they build their altar, which probably was massive, right? They build their altar, and Ahab says, all right, begin. And Elijah, instead of deciding to call his God first, decides to just walk on over and uh, check out the other guy's calling of their God that doesn't exist, their trendy God. And they bounce around and they're singing and they're dancing and Elijah's listening. And then he says something, maybe this is why I like Elijah because he says things just borderline beyond, like I don't think you're supposed to be able to say that stuff and still keep your pastor license. So I relate a lot to, to this prophet. But he's sitting there and he says something along the, the lines of, hey guys, where's your God? And they look at him and scowl, I'm sure. And then they dance even harder, you know, and they got their drums and they got their stuff and they're encouraging maybe the crowd because it's the trendy God and crowds love the trend, right? I mean, why not? Let's get to sing it. The whole crowd's singing out for trendy God to do his thing. And he's like, what, what, what's happening, people of Israel? Doesn't seem like he's there. He actually says in the text, you can look it up, 1 Kings chapter 18. He says, maybe he's asleep. And then he says in the text, maybe he's going to the bathroom. Maybe your God's taking a potty break. So these prophets in their anguish begin to cut themselves and bleed. They begin to dance and, and lather and chant and sing. And he lets it go on and on and on. And guess what happens? Absolutely nothing because it's not a real God. And guess what happens to the trend? The same thing that happens to all trends, it dies. 
And the people start at first. The prophets, I'm sure, kept going, but eventually the people are sitting down and they're like, you know, this is, this is embarrassing. Like, this is, I didn't expect this. I voted for the wrong prophet, clearly. And all of a sudden, the prophets are like, well, you know what, maybe, maybe our God just doesn't want to do it today, but clearly your God doesn't even exist. And Elijah's like, okay, my turn. And he walks over to his uh, stones and he puts the wood on it and then he brings the bowl and puts the bowl on it. And then he says, hey, bring some water. And they're like, what? Yeah, bring, bring some buckets of water. And they throw some water on it and the prophets are looking around. He's like, how about more water? How about more water? How about more water? How about more water? He's just moving against the tide of how this is supposed to work. Just so you know, we're not supposed to be able to grow churches in the Northwest. I didn't know if you knew that or not. I don't know if you knew that or not. It's not supposed to work. When I go to the Midwest, especially the Bible Belt area, and they're like, oh, oh, pastor of a church, like that's impossible, you have tattoos. And I'm like, judgment, but then I just let it go. <laughs> and then I just let it go. And then I'm like, I'm near Portland, Vancouver area. They're like, oh, well, that makes sense. You guys got, you got 20, 25 Christians out there? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, we got, I, I want to say, yeah, your mom goes to our church. That's what I want to say, but I'm not, <laughs> but that's, that's not appropriate at all. That's not appropriate at all. <laughs> we should get stickers. That's it. We're where your mom goes to church. That's what we should get. That's what we should get. But my point is, Elijah has some of this, some of this feeling. Bring the water. Bring the water. Bring the water. We're going to have to use the 9 o'clock now, aren't we? Bring the water. And then he steps forward, right? He steps forward and he prays. And he says, God, you know what is going on here. You see the situation that's going on here. I know you're real, make yourself known to them. And all it says is that fire falled from heaven. But before I imagine fire falling from heaven, just for me, I like to imagine Elijah's like two feet away. Because I just think it would be so much more epic. If he's just a few feet away, because he trusts God. And fire falls from heaven and it is so hot and so spectacular. The book says, the text says that it, eats, it consumes the bull, the wood, the water, the uh, the actual stone and the earth underneath. Unbelievable. And fire roars out and everybody's like, and apparently God consumed Elijah. But then as the fire clears, it's just Elijah sitting there. I like to imagine his robes are on fire, right? His beard is on fire. It's like a human sparkler, like everything's just on fire and smoking. He turns around, right? And he's got his, I like to imagine him with big grandpa eyebrows, right? Everything's smoking, everything's smoking. <laughs> You see it, you see it, don't you? You're like, yes, he is my favorite prophet. Everything's smoking. And he turns around and you know what he does? He does the same thing that God does with all of our old natures. He consumes them. And Elijah says, God wants you to take those prophets down to the river and destroy them. And that's exactly what the people of Israel do. Because that's exactly what God says he does with our old nature. He removes it from our person and he destroys it. Now, I don't know what sort of cheer went up, but I would imagine it would be pretty unbelievable while the nation of Israel got back their identity as a whole. But I know Elijah would have been touted as a powerful man. He would have been accoladed. He would have been uh, cheered. He would have been high-fived, whatever culturally that looked like. He would have been amazing. But did you know that in spite of all that, it says the very next day that he received a messenger. And that messenger brought a word from an angry queen. And this is what it says. 1 Kings 19, verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel, the king told the queen, all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me 
and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. See, the old self doesn't want to be removed. The old self will return. It will demand a reckoning when you get rid of it. When you set down your addictions, when you set down your habit, when you set down your old mind ways, it will show up in a completely different persona, in a completely different way, because it's not going to die that easy. And our job is to do what I wish Elijah would have done that he actually didn't do, which is go back to God in the exact same posture and say, God, I know that you're real. You know what you've called me to be. And if I was Elijah, you know where Jezebel is. So why don't you just call down some fire upon her face right now, right? This problem's over, right? You just see in the distance, just a tiny little, and you just hear a little, ah, it's done. It's done. But that's not what he does. Because, because when the old self shows up, right? When the old self shows up, we're used to it. We're ready for it. And a lot of times we just reflexively grab onto it. Look what this man does who called fire from heaven the day before. Verse three, then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. A lot of scholars believe this is actually an example of Elijah trying to kill himself. He is so distraught. He goes 24 hours out into a desert with no return, lays down and says, God, I'm done. I've had enough. Elijah forgets who God made him to be. He puts down who God says he was and he receives his old nature. This world will continually push its own false identity upon us. You have to expect that. That's the only way to survive it. That's why it's a continued transformation. Your sharkiness will not just go away because you're like, I'm done being mean to you, wife. It's over. It's an amazing worship service. She will do something or he will do something or something in your world will trigger you to respond like your old nature wants to. And unless you're prepared, unless I'm prepared, you will revert right back. Jamie Winship said there's three primary ways you can prepare for your old nature returning. Three primary false identities that the world puts upon you and says you're not enough. And they're tied to these three things. What you do, what you have, and what people think about you. That's where most of our false identities lie. In what we do, I wish we had more. In what we have, I wish we had more. And what people think about me, I wish they thought of me more. This is what we have to battle against, and God understands this. So he does for you the same thing he does for Elijah. He pursues. It says an angel touches Elijah, says to him, arise and eat. Elijah arises and eats and falls back asleep. Then an angel shows up again, says, arise and eat. This time, Elijah's being encouraged, like I hope you're being encouraged right now. He says, go to the mountain of God. And so Elijah goes back to the mountain of God. And once God had Elijah where he wanted him, there in that place, the Lord allows Elijah to experience a series of moments, a place where all of his own humanness could stand facing God's holiness. And I want to read that to you now. It's 1 Kings 19, verse 9, verses on the screen. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. 
And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, Elijah did. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And God said to him, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Within this story, Elijah is hiding from God in a place God has called him to. I don't know if you realize, but you're in church right now. So if you're hiding from God, you're in a great place. Great place. I also know this, that God told him to go stand on the cave, at the entrance of the cave. And it says he didn't go all the way. You have to read that carefully to know that he didn't actually obey and go all the way. Because when the fire came, God wasn't in it. When the wind came, God wasn't in it. When the earthquake came, God wasn't in it. And then suddenly God whispered, and then it says he went the rest of the way to the front of the cave. I don't know what situation brought you here into the church. I don't know what disappointment brought you here into the church. I don't know what your earthquake is, what your fire is, and what your wind is. I'm just here to tell you that's not God. What you're experiencing right now, that's God. And he's here. And he's going to ask you the same question he's asking Elijah. What are you doing here? Are you here because this is trendy? Are you here because... It, it, it meets some sort of uh, special requirements you feel like you have to in order to be the whole person you want to be? Or are you here because you don't know where else to be, which is the only reason anybody should go to church, by the way? Because it's a great space to drown in. And what you're supposed to do is what you know to do and what you're really good at doing. The same thing Elijah did and the same thing I do. Every time God asks me, what am I doing here? You're supposed to prop up your excuses. I have been faithful. And the whole world's turned against you. I have followed you since I was a child. Or I have sought you. But the Christians you've put in my path are evil and wicked as they come. I don't care what your excuses are. Prop them up. Let them be real. Don't deny them, just like Elijah did. But answer the question, what are you doing here? Do you know what God's answer to Elijah was? Return where you came from. Go back to the person you were before. In other words, leave your old self here in the cave and go pick up the new one that I've already designed for you. Now, does that mean he won't be afraid six hours later? Nope, it doesn't. Does that mean he won't be discouraged six hours later? Nope, it doesn't. Because it's a transformational process. We are supposed to be the place where people come and transform. And I'm just here to tell you, if you don't do your transformational work, then I hope God doesn't bring a single other person to this church till you do. Because I can't be in charge of it. We have to own this together. We have to be willing to sit in this. 
We have to recognize that the old man and the old woman is waiting and will show up and we have to know we're going to feel afraid and then decide to follow him anyways and return to the person he's called us to be. And if you've never accepted Christ in your life and you feel the waves lapping up against your heart and overwhelmingness, there's no magic to it. You simply do what Elijah did. God, I know you're real. Make yourself known to me. Save me through your son, Jesus Christ. And you let him do the rest. But most of us in this room, my guess is we've prayed that prayer. We've just been consumed by the old man and the old woman. So here's what I want to do to wrap up. I want to create that cave moment again. I want to give an opportunity for you and I to sit in that space and ponder what we are doing here and the identity that we are holding on to. And I want to believe that God wants to take it and walk us through conviction and healing and wholeness and transformational relationship with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, within this space right now, uh, I'm going to ask, God, that it would be a custom to each person who's going to experience it. That they would not think of a single other person as they as they sit inside of uh, what we're about to walk out next, but that instead, Lord, they would recognize that this is for them. That they would, they would offer up their reasons, their excuses, their, their uh, some of them, Lord, incredibly painful burdens. And that God, within that space, they would recognize that whether it be fire or wind or earthquake, that you are not in those things. You are in the presence and the whisper of the love they're feeling right now, the acceptance for who they are right now, the wholeness and integration of your spirit right now. May you, Lord, make yourself known as we present ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
sit in this moment for a little bit longer and remember our true identity in Christ and who he calls us, who he says we are. I am gonna read our adventure verse for the week over you guys. Colossians 1, 21 through 23 says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation and under heaven. Before we wrap up our time together this morning, I felt like the Lord had placed a song on my heart this week as we were building our set for you guys. And the song is called Blameless and the chorus just talks about the truths um, of who we are, who God has, the gift that he's given us, the creation that we are just found in him. And so we are gonna sing this song together this morning. Um, I wanna invite you, I wanna teach you first, but really it's more of an invitation to grab hold of these truths, to claim them for yourself as a church body, as a family, and as a community. So we're gonna sing the chorus a couple times for you guys, and then we will stand and we will sing it all together as we close out our morning, okay? Sound good? Yes, all right, here we go. Chorus goes like this. Man. 